0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: There's a rhythm to the streets. If you're sensitive to it, it's very obvious. There's, there's a language there, and it's very important to be able to read it. When I go into a situation where I'm filming, or I have a camera, I always immediately feel everybody's... I know how they feel about it within five seconds, because I can read their face, their body language, and I know who in that group is okay with it, who isn't, who's shy, who thinks I'm an asshole, who's angry at me, I can I pick it up right away. This is Penny. My name is Penny O'Radical. Uh, I didn't choose that name. It was given to me by a uh, schoolyard friend
2: in uh, third grade. Penny is a filmmaker. And he has a really specific subject. He focuses on filming people who live on the streets of his hometown, Hamilton, Ontario.
1: The first thing I usually say to people is, I don't film anyone without their permission. So right away, what that does is it gives people some power. It shows them respect that they don't often get.
2: Penny posts the videos he makes on YouTube Like this one, with a guy he got to know named Storm.
1: Where are you from originally?
3: Hamilton. Born and raised here.
2: How long
1: have you been homeless for?
3: About a year now. With no help from the Crown. I had a welding ticket. National steel car.
1: Oh yeah? You were a welder?
3: I had a family too. Wife, two kids,
2: nice little apartment. Uh,
1: Storm? has a sort of a tragic story where he lost a child he was married and working and sort of had a secure life and i think that uh the death of his infant daughter sort of changed his trajectory it's a a large part of why he is where he is now
2: because
3: after that then my wife left took my son Sun back and forth between my parents and hers. I lost everything that I had that I cared for. Came out here to the core of Hamilton. Didn't really care about anything.
2: Penny's YouTube channel is full of interviews like this. It's not a big channel, but it's not small either. About 1,000 subscribers. And that video with Storm from last summer has close to 5,000 views. So why does Penny do this?
1: Because I want people to see what's going on, and I want them to see that everybody has their own story.
2: Everybody has their own story, including Penny. Part of why this matters so much to him, why Penny documents the reality of homelessness and the lives of people living it, is because... When he started this YouTube channel, Penny was living on the streets too. I'm Macy Rowe, and this is The Dog Project. Today, you're going to meet two people whose stories could have turned out very differently. Guys who've taken some of the hardest parts of their lives and used them to make something beautiful to make a change. Coming up, when he was just a kid, Wesley Altoona was separated from his mother and his home in the Philippines. When he got to Canada, he was eight. For decades, he felt lost. But when Wes was let go from his job at the beginning of the pandemic, he started cooking his way back home again.
3: Like my fridge would be full of food, you know, and I'm always cooking, because it's just my way of just like making myself feel feel better.
2: But first, Penny, a radical. In 2019, after years of having and losing a roof over his head, Penny started documenting his experiences with homelessness and addiction on his YouTube channel. And soon, he started turning the lens on his neighbors, people he's gotten to know in shelters and on the streets. He wanted people watching his videos to get it to see the realities that he sees, that he's lived. Penny is going to start at the beginning.
1: I grew up in a fairly average middle-class home. Uh, I was born in McMaster Hospital, and my dad was originally uh, working at Stelco on the line. And then when I was very young, he got promoted. Uh, He joined the sales team. Back then, you didn't need a degree. You could go from, you know, coiling wire to the sales department if they liked you. So uh, he made it work and uh, he ended up moving us up the mountain. And I spent my teenage years on the West Mountain and I went to West Mountain High School. To use a cliched term, I was the class clown. You know, grade school up until high school, I was, you know, a little chubby, freckled, you know, not the type of guy who's like gonna get all the girls and stuff like that. So I think I used humor to endear myself to a lot of people. The group of friends I was in, uh, we were very tight knit. They were kind of like my family, and uh, we spent all our time together. And we started experimenting with drugs and alcohol when when we were 12. So uh by the time high school came around and I was about 14 we had a pretty routine uh substance abuse going, you know, like we would smoke weed every day and then we would drink on Fridays and Saturdays. We would also mix in some mushrooms and acid and as I got older You know, started mixing in ecstasy and cocaine, stuff like that. Substance abuse um, runs in my family, sort of on my father's side. Um, My dad, my dad's dad, as far back as anyone can remember, have all had problems with alcohol. Um, But my dad, um, even though he struggled with that, and there were some very tumultuous times... Uh, he still you know he went to work every day he put food on the table put a roof over our heads you know I'm the first one to sort of branch out into drugs I finished high school eventually and uh, I actually was in a band in high school and after um, we just after we graduated we just kept going and we got more serious about it But uh, by the time I was serious about being in a band, I was already a pretty steady, pretty heavy drug user. I had started using opiates, like Dilaudid and morphine and heroin. And uh, the music was actually one thing that kept me clean in a way. Whenever we would go on tour, um, I would have to like, basically through withdrawal and kick the drugs because our first tour I was clean but our second tour I had developed a physical dependency by then and I actually kicked dope on the road so playing shows and being involved in the music scene um, there's a lot of very supportive people and uh, it was it wasn't you know as debaucherous as people think it is It was only when I wasn't playing music, when I was home, that's when the drugs would really take hold. Alright, what's your name? Melissa. And where are you from? I'm originally from British Columbia, but I've lived in Hamilton for almost a decade. Why did you decide to come to Ontario? Well, my brother spoke really highly about Hamilton specifically because he grew up here. And uh, I came here to support him, mm-hmm. and I got abused. And I'll just leave it as that. Are you homeless right now, or do you have a place to stay? Yeah, sit? I need to find a find a place to rent. I've been on the street for a while. How long you been homeless for? Since, like, last April. Do you think the average person has a good idea of what's going on with homelessness right now? Absolutely not. Like Every homeless person, every street person is just a person with so much potential that's being wasted. When I was 23, uh, my best friend, one of my best friends uh, died. We spent a lot of time together in that last year because we were using together. When he died, Uh, A lot of things changed, like the whole dynamic of our friend group changed. Um, You know, some people got clean and people drifted apart. And about, I think it was about six months later, I got clean myself. So I was going to NA meetings and um, that's when my son was born. And then... Uh, I broke up with my son's mother, you know, <laughs> sometimes I look back and I wonder what the hell I was thinking, you know, going back to it because it happened so many times, but and i and I try to analyze why I did, but I can't because I, I was just such a different person back then. But whatever the reason I went back to using when I was uh, about 26, I guess, I guess it was because I was most like for the most part I was functioning. I've, I've had several different jobs, but I never lost a job because of drugs. I always like, I worked three years as a steelworker and then the company shut down. And then I worked two years as a uh, supervisor at a banquet center. And then they downsized. And then I worked three years at an office and then they, the branch closed and we all lost our jobs. So I mean, I never had any extra money because all my extra money went to drugs, but I also never missed a day of work. I never missed a visit with my son and I never used drugs when I was around him. So I guess because of those two things, I sort of rationalized it like it what I was doing was okay because I was keeping it away from those two aspects of my life. And then used for another long stretch, uh, three or four years, then got clean again. Then my mother died in 2012. So I started using again. And then in 2014, I got clean. And then in late 2016, early 2017, I relapsed and really went down like the worst path I had gone down to that point. And that's how I ended up homeless Until it has an impact on your own life, it's very hard to sympathize or empathize because uh, you always think there's some difference. There's some reason why they're there and you're not. The, th- the thing about it is everybody has resources. You have your family. You have your job. You have your money. You have your, your critical faculties. Everybody thinks like, well, if I ever lost my job... I w- really I would be okay because I could fall back on my family or friends or I could just get a uh, uh, like a worse job or something. But you start losing these resources over the years one by one. You're juggling all these balls of you know barely paying your rent and barely paying your bills and not having anything to fall back on. Me personally, it was a very long time of using up the resources that I had and then you add drugs in and you do something, you know, stupid like I did. I don't usually talk about this, but, uh, I did something that I'm not proud of. Uh, I stole something from a friend of mine and, uh, I felt really, really horrible about it. And Uh, Like, I used the money for drugs. I couldn't go back to my apartment because of stealing from my friend. I couldn't go to my family. I had no friends around who were willing to help. So I was just walking downtown Hamilton with a backpack for about three days. It had rained constantly for those three days. You know, I was soaked to the bone and... I just said i asked a couple guys like which is the best shelter to go to and i went to the salvation army and that's how i uh started my whole homeless experience today i got to interview somebody in social work i first met her when i was homeless and staying at the shelter i've been wanting to interview somebody from that perspective for a while now And she had some really interesting things to say. What were some of the things that were consistent issues that you saw at the shelter?
2: Um, You know, drug abuse is rampant. Um, That's for numerous reasons. Um, Mental health is huge. There's a lot of just complacency uh, on attitudes, both of the client and on the staff. You know, you get caught in the the, this is never going to change rut. I know when I felt I was working there, I felt like I was working at a damn site. And there's a leak in the dam. And all you have to fix the dam is a pack of chewing gum. (laughs) Like, you know, like there there there's so many issues running rampant in the shelter that that need to be addressed. And men specifically are very underfunded.
1: It was very eye-opening. I remember uh, there's one moment that sticks in my mind, and I always think about it. The first time I slept there at the shelter, and I was standing in line to get breakfast... And I'm standing in the line with, like, a bunch of other homeless men waiting for food. And it was such a slap in the face. Like, it was such a wake-up call as far as, like, you know, I can't believe where my life has ended up. I wasn't in a good place. Like, pretty much everything about my life was not where I wanted it to be. I wasn't doing anything creative. My family would have nothing to do with me. My friends we tired of, you know, my situation. And then when it started to get cold, I was really starting to get fed up with street life because I'm like, when it's cold, it just really gets to you. So I spoke with a a really great worker at uh, Salvation Army, and she helped me um, get a place. The only place I could afford was, like, a really run-down rooming house. And my housemates were, you know... There was a crackhead, a drunk, a guy who was a trucker who was never there. And then later on, the crackhead's uncle moved in and he was, you know, had his own issues. So the cops would be knocking on the door, my downstairs neighbors overdosing. It was impossible to get any rest there. I actually stayed there for a year, but it was just because it was slightly better than being homeless. I kept asking my landlord to do something about it. and he didn't he just didn't i told him i was moving out and on my way out i took some money that didn't belong to me and just left the cops through their own investigation found me and arrested me and then that brings us to me being in jail in the summer of 2019 so i'm homeless again got out of jail By the time I got out, I lost my place. So now I'm on the street again. When I was released from jail and homeless for the second time, I started making YouTube videos. It doesn't matter how long you've been in jail, whether it's a week, whether it's two months, or whether it's years. When you get out of jail, this involuntary like elation just overwhelms you like you're just so glad just to be out of there i went to the shelter and um tried to get a bed didn't have any success the first night but i did the second night so i had somewhere to put my stuff and i was just sort of thinking about what i could do to fill my days really at that time and I was working day labor jobs when I could find them, but quite often there were days where I had nothing to do and I had, I had the motivation to do something because I was clean. So I started to see things around me that I thought would be interesting to capture and that I thought maybe other people might be interested to see, like just how life sort of functions on that level. I started recording with my cell phone I had at the time, and I uh, just started uploading videos. These washrooms I'm showing footage of are constantly being used as a place for our city's homeless to consume their drugs. I know because I was one of them. I've actually only overdosed twice in my entire life, and one of them was in this washroom here. I I must have been in there so long that somebody knocked on the door and then they unlocked it because I woke up surrounded by people and uh, I was already in the hospital so uh, I guess if you're going to overdose somewhere, I was filming on a Samsung A5 with a broken screen. For some reason that Samsung had a pretty decent camera on it so I had a phone and I had a very basic mobile app and that's how I put all my videos together for the first six months. Today I wanna talk a little bit about opiate withdrawal. The first time you stop using opiates after your body has become physically dependent, it's a serious wake up call. Uh, It's almost impossible to describe to somebody who hasn't experienced it. Uh, You can't imagine how intolerable it feels. Symptoms can vary greatly, but this is what my experience was like. When you first stop using opiates, uh, you have anxiety about the coming withdrawal. Uh, You feel incredibly weak. You don't have the energy to move, but the anxiety and discomfort make it impossible to feel at rest or to get any sleep. Uh, Sitting still or lying still feels awful because of the anxiety that sort of radiates through your body. Uh, Your joints and muscles ache. Uh, It feels as if you don't have any lubrication between your joints. Your eyes and your nose run. Uh, You have severe diarrhea. One of the few good things about you know, losing everything is that you have nothing left to lose. There was no like boss somewhere who's going to like see the video and fire me the next day because I'm a drug addict or something. So being candid like that was, it just felt good. Like it was creative. It was, it was almost like it felt healthy. And that's just because of all the experiences I've been through for the last, you know, 20 years. I like to think of myself as a filmmaker and a journalist, sort of an amalgam of those two things, because I explore the same sort of things that a journalist would explore, but I also incorporate filmmaking into my YouTube videos. So it's kind of a combination of both. Uh, One of the side effects of COVID is that all the public spaces have been shut down. So homeless people have nowhere to go. One of the things that people don't realize about being homeless is that the main issue isn't where to sleep or where to eat. The main issue is the stress of constantly being bombarded with noise and stressful situations. You have no place to go back to to recharge or to get some privacy or to sleep. And that constant noise, that constant barrage is very difficult to deal with. For those first few months, it just sort of slowly grew, and it didn't really grow to anything big, but it grew to, you know, like 50 to 100 people were sort of following my story. I also started writing, and I always wanted to write something autobiographical, but I had never realized how to do it, or I'd never had a good sort of framework For the last like 10 years of my life, I've kept a list in my pocket and it's a list of my dead friends. It's everybody that I've known through addiction or just sort of in that world. Anyone that I considered a friend who has died prematurely, I would write their name on the list. In October of 2019, Uh, I was at the public library, and I was thinking about what I could write, and I took out my list, and I realized that there were, I think at that time there were 22 names on the list, so I thought, what if I made every chapter a name, and just wrote about how I knew that person, how they were involved in my life, what my life was like while I knew them. Owen had an on-again, off-again battle with drugs. But this didn't change the fact that he was a really great guy. He had managed to keep off crystal meth for two months before going on the four-day bender that ended his life. Don's pride had long since been stripped away, so he felt no shame in telling me about his cancer or that Debbie had moved in to take care of him. He still looked healthy enough, but the disease was spreading rapidly. Debbie had begun her adult life as a nurse. Somebody who watches my videos sent me a message about uh, a contest that was being held by Keeping Six, who is an organization in Hamilton that does work with homelessness and addiction and anything in that sort of area. I checked it out, and the contest was just for writing and artwork. So I decided to send the first chapter of my book in and uh, I ended up winning. The prize was $100. For some reason, I just had it in my mind that I should use the prize money to sort of give back to the homeless people that I was writing about in the first place, which is how I got started handing out care packages, which is something I do regularly now. I got, I got granola bars, juice, socks,
2: uh, I don't need a bag for yeah, the oh
0: my God, you got
1: socks? You want white or black? Black. black. Oh my, kid, where did you come is there from? there anything you don't have? <laughs> Seriously. This is it. I, got... I fit into those places because of my experiences, yeah. but really? at the same time, I also fit into these other places I think one of the reasons why I started reporting on what was going on around me is because you know people who use drugs or homeless people one of their main issues is the fact that they they can't communicate their problem as well as I can. It's something I have okay, that I can sure. use. That's what I oh, gave her that, that one back that you gave oh. me. <laughs> I, I, gave me. <laughs> I want to make it clear, you know, I was not the best person for a lot of years. I committed a lot of crime and I did a lot of things I'm not proud of. And I lied a lot and I cheated a lot and I stole a lot and I did all the things that you do to like keep your drug addiction going. A part of me feels like I'm doing it as penance, like that I owe it to myself and to everyone else to sort of help other people as like punishment's the wrong word but like as a penance for my sins you know like for all that time i spent taking you know i feel like it's important to give now because i did i just took for so long
0: uh you were at the shelter at one point too before were you i was at the shelter yeah yeah I, it's awesome reality. to see you doing something
1: good like this you know Like come from the shelter the most, like uh, us run
2: Penny O' Radical. That doc was produced by Evan Agard. It was edited by Allison Cook with support from the CBC Doc Mentorship Program. The song you're listening to right now is In the Know by Penny's band, Kitchens and Bathrooms. And you can find Penny on YouTube. It's probably easiest if you just search Penny O Radical. That's O apostrophe radical. Penny has found somewhere to live in Hamilton. Right now, he says he's doing okay. up after the break. the story of a guy who took lemons and cloned those lemons to make super lemons, or in his case, delicious nutritious Filipino food. Sit tight. From CBC Podcasts and the Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MK Ultra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who uses patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: So we have this customer that reached out from the Philippines, actually. They're from Cebu. And uh, they wanted to... Um, extend a meal to um, a friend over in North York.
2: (laughs) That is chef Wesley Altoona. And in his kitchen with him is producer Andrew Budziak.
0: So you got somebody from (laughs) Cebu, Philippines ordering through Instagram for somebody in Toronto.
3: Yeah, yeah, Uh, yeah, (laughs) it's crazy.
2: Wes's restaurant is called Bawang. Though it's not exactly a restaurant, Wes has a kitchen, but it's delivery and pickup only. Often, Wes delivers the orders he cooks personally. Wes started his kitchen at simultaneously the best and worst possible time to open a new business, last March, during Toronto's first pandemic lockdown. But now, Toronto is in its second lockdown and Wes's orders keep rolling in, including the one he's prepping right now from this customer in the Philippines, ordering for a friend in Toronto.
3: He chose us to um you know to give a um, a meal for someone special he thought it would be the perfect gift uh for uh for her so she's probably like she's probably gonna be like what the fuck is this is this a joke like hey man you're gifting someone beef stew <laughs> fuck the ring here's a here's a bowl of beef stew fuck it i'll give you four
2: This is a story about passion and struggle and food. So much food. We're going to follow Wes as he jockeys for space on Canada's food scene, determined to put his menu and himself on the map. Just a warning, there is a lot of cussing in this story. If you would like to hear a cuss-free or at least mostly cuss-free version of this story, head to our website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject and you can find one there. Andrew Budziak is going to take it from here.
0: There's a back door off Toronto's College Street. Open it and head down the steep set of stairs. By the time you reach the bottom step, your senses will be overwhelmed. The sound of the knife hitting the cutting board. Grease sizzling. The smell, sweet and savory hitting in equal amounts. Turn the corner and walk into the blazing light of the fluorescent kitchen. You won't find high-end industrial gas stoves. No French-made cast iron cookware. Nothing matches. This is a kitchen with no restaurant attached, and it's been pulled together on a budget with love. A handsome guy with long black hair and a ponytail stands over a wide, deep pan, oil sizzling, garlic frying. He's wearing yellow-tinted glasses. This is Chef Wesley Altoona, Wes. He didn't graduate from a fancy cooking program, and he didn't come up through the kitchen scene, but you wouldn't know that by watching him work he's a culinary maverick. He's starting his work week by making what is quickly and quietly becoming a legendary dish in this city.
3: There's there's a base recipe for making adobo, but there's so many variations of it.
0: Like my
3: version and your version would be completely different based on your taste palette, but like, but yeah, everyone's take on adobo is is different. It's always different. Adobo, um, how do I describe it, man? Like. I mean, it's it's a uh, it's a pork stew, um, savory, a little bit on the on the sweet side as well. So you get the sweetness from on the back of the uh, at the tail end of your uh, your bite. Really hearty.
0: What makes what makes your adobo specific? Well,
3: number one is delicious. Uh, <laughs> all all the the recipes that I that I've been all the dishes that I've been introducing are recipes that I've inherited from my my folks. So, um, you know, I have a very good sort of palate for what that tastes like based on the traditions that I grew up in. What makes mine different is, is also like the the technique, um, the ingredients that go into it, um, the basic ingredients is like really just four items.
0: Walk me through that. I can't. That's a secret. <laughs> tell you that. Here's how Bawang operates. Early in the week, Wes puts out the menu on Instagram. When it's up, you have to work fast. You place your order, and if you're lucky, you're in. Orders are limited. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, Wes and his small team cook the food and deliver it in the evening. You can also do pickup during a 30-minute window. Wes is constantly changing the menu.
3: Hey, we have adobo, pancit, kare-kare, bagoongan, Uh, We have some mung bean soup, our uh, manit, some veg, some rice, and wings, lumpia. Our dessert today is uh, called dinatan. It's like a warm, like mix of yams.
0: Bawang means garlic in Tagalog, the language of the Philippines. That's where Wes is from. That's where a lot of Canadians are from. Despite being the third largest immigrant group in Canada, Filipino food is largely absent from the mainstream Canadian food scene. Ask yourself, when was the last time you said, hey, let's order Filipino tonight? Do you think, you know, for the, for the majority of people ordering um, from you that you're delivering to, is this their first time having Filipino food? A lot of them, yeah. A
3: lot of them, for sure. Be able to introduce Filipino food um, and, and be part of that, like, yeah, I think that's, that's pretty fucking awesome, man.
0: The idea of making a city as big and diverse as Toronto fall in love with Filipino food is almost quixotic. Add that Wes launched Bawang during the height of the province's first pandemic lockdown, and you see what he's truly up against. But there's a beginning to Wes' story that makes it all the more unlikely that he would find himself slowly rising to the top of Toronto's food scene. But we'll get to that. Here's what Wes has going for him his magnetism. I met Wes in mid 2020 for a video series I was working on. His personality is massive, and you can't help but be drawn to him. He's the kind of guy who makes friends quickly. His belief in himself and his abilities is his North Star. Filipino cuisine is complex. The combination of sweet and savory is a delicate balance. And that's a balance Wes has been tasting since he can remember. Growing up in the town of Vigan on Ilocosor, food was never absent, despite not having a lot of money. Like I said, we didn't have much. You know, um, the biggest like
3: if you get really excited about getting a fridge (laughs) like that shows you like the level of the level of setup that we had before we had a fridge. The only time we would drink something cold is if we, you know, buy ice at a local, you know, local shop or like get cold drinks or whatever. But like I don't want to say majority, but a lot of people in the Philippines sort of like build stuff. And, and make things out of nothing and create like um, create that as a means
0: of um, providing for the family. The kitchen is noisy and not a good place for an interview. So Wes invites me over to his apartment. When I arrive, he has a box set up on the table. Yeah I'm I'm sure ex- you I didn't guys, look I'm I didn't sure look. You what's
3: inside the, uh, the magic box bro
0: So it's got like a wooden kind of base. the top is top is like a decorative metal. And you've told me not to look in it. It's so my pride, pride possession, man. This box contains a few hundred photos from Wes's life. He pulls one out. It shows a large family gathering around a table. This is from Wes's youth in the Philippines. I, it's kind of, kind of hard to tell from the photos, but what could you, what would you guess would be the meals there? Oh
3: man, it's all, it's all home style for sure. Typically on, a, on, a, on a birthdays, you will have pancit or palabok or some type of noodle dish which signifies long life. And then there's like usually like chicken and just things that you wouldn't typically make, like something that's a little bit more elevated, elevated, like special.
0: That vibe of everybody sitting around, just around the table, having, having a great time eating, family style. Is this what you're trying to do with Pawan?
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, like our food is it's is, 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 is meant to be shared, right? So there's a communal aspect of it, sharing the tradition of togetherness. Nobody eats first, nobody eats last, everybody eats together. That's sort of like the vibe that Bawang is extending, right? It's not just delicious home-style food, but it's intentional. It's intended to bring people together, and that is sort of our way or my way of extending that culture beyond, beyond our kitchen.
0: These happy family scenes came to an end for Wes when he was eight. Too young to know what was going on, He remembers piling into a taxi with his mom and grandma and pulling up at the Manila airport. I don't know, like I didn't
3: know what was happening, right? I was just kind of going with the ride, right? Like every, at that age, everything is sort of, decisions were made for you, you just kind of go with it. So my feeling then was that like, oh, we're just gonna go, we're gonna go on a trip to Canada. Wow, fucking the best, you know? And like my brother was old enough to understand what was happening, um, but I didn't. There's a lot of excitement in the airport, I remember feeling super excited and giddy. And I'm like, oh, man, I can't get on the plane. It's going to be so good. My grandma's playing it up like, yeah, they have nuts. i will give you free nuts. I'm like, what? <laughs> they give you nuts? Yeah. And they have orange juice and all that. Like, basically saying all the things that I love, right, just to like so that I could feel comfortable going on in this plane. And my brother just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, and he knew what was going on. Like, but nobody told me what the fuck was happening until we go so we were going we're, we're, we're going through the gate we're, we're you know we're um checking in we passed through the gate and i look back i'm like man let's go and she's like no and uh, she's like yeah i uh, so she yeah so she just kind of like stayed uh behind and then um yeah that was <laughs> that was that was that that was that experience And then I, I just, I remember um, bawling my eyes out, I was basically being dragged to the plane. I knew, like at that point it, it started to like, you know, I started to feel homesick. You know, when you, it's just like, it's a weird feeling, man. It's a really weird fucking feeling. There's a lot of emotions, a lot of anger. Like, I just remember going in, that scene, waking up, landing in Canada. So uh, I might have fucking cried myself to sleep. I don't know, fuck the nuts, fuck the orange juice. But yeah, it was, it was a very, it was really, really, really hard for me.
0: Wouldn't your mom come? It she was,
3: just wasn't part of the deal.
0: The immigration situation was that Wes and his brother were allowed to stay with their grandparents who were already settled in Canada. But Wes's mom would have to wait. Wes's father died when Wes was young, making separating from his mother now, too, all that much harder. The plan was for her to come to Canada at a later time. Back at the kitchen, it's midday and things are getting busy.
1: Do you make wing sauce?
3: Oh, no. Okay. Shit. Thank you. Oh, you want the deeper one? Oh, okay. You can switch it. Yeah, can we switch it? Cause I'm gonna transfer the meat on here. Did you forget about the wing sauce? I forgot the wing sauce. But it's it's okay. okay. We'll be uh, we'll be okay. Cause like there's so many things I'm thinking about that I often forget like to eat. <laughs> <laughs> What's crazy is that like we, um, like mornings are usually really chill and slow and it's got like a good pace. But once we hit like, say about 2 o'clock, 2-3 two, o'clock it gets really crazy because that's when everything gets pulled in together and that's where the, the stress really comes into play
0: Wes also carries another stress the stress of trying to elevate Filipino food in the minds of his customers so I feel that like it's important for us to not only you know educate
3: our um, our customers you know through food but like also allow them to appreciate it and, and train their palate um, with what we're putting out. And that's why I think it's critical to have, you know, to represent the food well and, and make sure it's fucking delicious, man, because there's it's a lot of steak here.
0: <laughs> After leaving the Philippines, Wes really missed his mom. They wrote letters and sent audio cassettes. Because of the remoteness of his mom's town, it took months for packages to arrive. Unfortunately, Wes's grandmother got rid of the tapes, so I asked Wes to describe them to me. So these tapes were like voice, voice records between myself and my mother.
3: It started off with my grandma talking like, hey, how are you, whatever, whatever. And then, you know, you'll hear like, okay, come, 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 no, 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 it's playing, it's playing. So then I go and like collect myself and talk every time I do this shit dude I'm like crying like can't get a word out fucking snot's out we would we would like communicate that way and tell her like what's going on just kind of like paint a picture of what what's been the last six months looks like cause that was the last probably the last communication we had through either phone or through tape just love just her voice talking as if we're in the same room and I'd play it
0: over and over and I'd cry each time Wes's grandparents played the parenting role. Talking now, he often refers to them not as grandma and grandpa, but as mom and dad. Beyond love and affection, Wes's grandfather provided something else, an early culinary inspiration. From his early days in Toronto, cooking is one of the only constants in Wes's life. He worked at
3: at an Italian restaurant in Yorkville.
0: Wes pulls out a photo of his grandfather at work.
3: So he was the head cook. Uh he would always say that he was the head chef there, but I didn't know the fucking difference. I'm just like, oh my god, dad, that's fucking amazing. So this is him posing in his white top, stirring a big pot of tomato sauce, with of course his you know, his James Bond glasses, hand in the pocket, like just like, Yeah, I'm cooking. <laughs> but that's his vibe, man. That's always been his vibe. That's his vibe even at home.
0: Despite the love he received from his grandparents, Wes's teenage years were tough.
3: You know, I had good intentions, but I've always got into I got into a lot of trouble. A lot of that too came from I think there was a lot of anger underneath all that. A lot of frustration.
0: Not having his parents in the scene, it takes a toll. Why's it gotta be
3: fucking Father's Day today? You know, like Mother's Day, like none of that shit. Right that that was never really a thing for me, right? And those are like triggers for me. You know? So I've always I've always I was always angry.
0: Wes's mom never made it to Canada. Wes tried to make arrangements for her to immigrate, but she kept making excuses. Wes never fully understood her reluctance. The whole thing made him frustrated. So there was a lot of resentment there and I I was really like, I was really
3: upset to a point where like like I didn't talk to her for like an entire year. People do things or act in a certain way that you may not necessarily understand, but they have their own intentions and I'm sure it's out of, it was all good intentions, but I didn't understand it at the time, so I was, I was really upset.
0: In his mid-teens, Wes was hanging around some older guys who were involved in some incredibly vicious altercations. Wes tells me about an attack on one of his friends. He says it was retribution for something, but he doesn't tell me what.
3: You know, we'd be standing outside, doing our thing, just hanging out, and then all of a sudden someone will come from behind and shank a buddy of mine across the face with a blade and then that shit would just splatter all over me and we had to rush his guy into the hospital holding his face together and this is the first time i've seen blood a dot color i think it was blue because before it hits oxygen it's blue and
0: that came out of nowhere that was a huge shock Around this time, Wes moved into his own apartment. For the first time in Wes's life, he was living by himself. He felt disconnected and alone. Those were hard years. In between moving out, the violence and anger, one spot of comfort remained. Wes never stopped cooking. Food became a positive through line for Wes, something steady to return to. While living in his first apartment, he met a neighbor called Isaac. Isaac was older, and he and Wes became fast friends. Isaac became a mentor to Wes. He was different from Wes's other friends. He was a professional who moved in fancy social circles. For the first time in Wes's life, Wes met someone who saw him the way he wanted to see himself. Smart, confident, and ambitious.
3: Slowly that sort of like influence started to rub off of me. And I start to think bigger. I'm fucking smart, dude. I can do this shit, right? And I stopped. I slowly stop opening my doors to just (laughs) shitheads.
0: The kitchen is getting busy, things are moving, meals are coming out, and they need to be bagged. Wes calls me over as he finishes off one of the last dishes, Lichon, He wants me to hear it. How's it looking? Perfect. Is this this the moment of truth when you start cutting in? Oh yeah, you can really hear it. So you know when when you hear that kind of noise. It's super crunchy, and that's what we really want. So you're using a bread knife to cut this meat?
3: Yeah, I'm using a bread knife to cut through the, uh, the skin of the lechon. And the reason why I do it this way is so that it's, it stays intact as best yeah, as possible.
0: This is where my impartiality as a journalist fails me. I love lechon. This crispy, fatty pork belly is unreal. It's made in Spain and a bunch of former Spanish colonies. But I'm sorry, the Philippines owns this dish. I've been lucky enough to eat it in the Philippines a few times. But I have to say, Wes's lechon is the best I've ever had. Oh
3: man, how do I describe this? Imagine like popcorn,
0: skin, tenderness, heaven. Unlike a lot of chefs, Wes remains cool and calm while he works. His isn't a kitchen with yelling. His ability to deal with high-pressure situations likely came from the environments he found himself in in his 20s and 30s. After spending time with his mentor Isaac and the horrors of the violence West saw, he decided it was time to get a real job. In high school, he did an internship placement at a bank. He figured that was a good place to start.
3: So I had like a resume (laughs) folded in four. (laughs) One sheet. Like this in my back pocket. And I would go drop off like these resumes all over the city. And I'm like, I wanna go, I wanna work in the bank. So I walked into this, uh, I walked to the bank at uh, Young and St. Clair. I'm like, yeah, I want a job. <laughs> I'm applying for a teller position. He goes, oh, okay. Um, yeah, do you have any experience? Uh, I, I go, yeah, I do. And, you know, I do this. I opened up, like, I take out my resume. So then he's looking at me, looking at me, and he's like, Hey, were you at Elephant Castle like, you know, uh, a a couple weeks back? I go, Yeah. He goes, Were you at, um, were you sitting by the bar and just like, you know, just hanging out, whatever? I go, Yeah, that was me. So he goes and closes the door. (laughs) He's like, Do you remember me? Like, what, we met? Cause yeah, um yeah, we met. Like um uh, you know, I was I was I was there and you know, um you were in the washroom. I'm like oh, yes, I remember you. So what
0: happened in the washroom? Drugs. They did drugs. As I mentioned, Wes is magnanimous. He makes friends everywhere. Even when he's up to no good at Elephant and Castle.
3: Yeah, I remember. He goes, oh no, no, no. And then we're just talking, talking. And he's like, Yeah, so so you're here? you wanna work? I go, Yeah. Can you start Monday? I'll be here tomorrow. He goes, Okay, come Monday.
0: Wes climbed the ladder at the bank. Eventually he left and went to work in advertising. He excelled there, making more money than he ever thought possible. By this point, Wes's rough years were behind him. And through that life shift, the one thing that was constant was his love of cooking. He cooked for himself, for friends or parties. It was a passion that never waned. I'm always cooking because it's just my way of just like feeling time and just feeling, you know, making, you know, just kind of making myself feel, feel better and comforted, right? His 20s and 30s were spent making good money, but working for other people in stressful situations. But that came to an end in 2020. Like so many people around the world, Wes was laid off when the pandemic hit. Faced with uncertainty and not sure what to do during lockdown, he resorted to his old comfort. I started
3: cooking things that I I grew up eating, and I like just like things that I was just like, oh, I'm craving this today. I'm gonna make this today, you know. And I crave something else. I'll make it, and and it just so happens that I'll make so much of these, (laughs) so much of these dishes that I'd end up with all these like extras. Like my fridge would be full of food, you know. And I'm always cooking because it's just my way of just like feeling time and just feeling, you know, making, you know, just kind of making myself feel feel better and comforted, right?
0: Wes started posting messages on Instagram. Like what I'm making? Hit me up. Orders started coming in. He got busy. He had to move the operation from his apartment kitchen to the spot on College Street. When Wes cooks, he's not just trying to create the best dishes possible. He's constantly striving to recreate the flavors and feelings of food from his youth. Do your dishes that you make, that you know you grew up eating and had from home do these like make you feel closer to to the philippines and 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 to your mom like is does the food help connect you to to some of those things
3: yeah absolutely like it hits home man like every time i make something like it's just it's a very comforting feeling man like it's like imagine like you know that term, you know, you, you eat your heart out, you know, it's like the same way. Like when I'm in my feelings, I'm eating something that not only is delicious and, you know, you grow up eating, but it just, it sparks those certain memories. Like it just makes me feel like a kid again, you know, like when my parents used to make food or like they'll make certain type of dishes a certain type of like a day of the week and you have it, it's like, fuck, yes. You know, you, you know, your parents are going to make it or they surprise you with something that, you know, you didn't, you didn't think you needed, but you had it. Are you having it. Now I get to create those feelings and those memories for me, for myself, when I'm craving. Even like the way I put my menu now, or I create my menu.
0: It's based on a feeling that I have. Time could change your heart and remind you that frustration and pain don't last forever. Eventually, Wes grew to forgive his mom. He visits her in the Philippines. Those trips are emotional and wonderful. During my time with Wes, learning about the emotion behind each dish on his menu, and the stories of how they got there, it all makes the food somehow more delectable. Knowing the true story of a dish is like tasting a secret, remarkable ingredient. Back at Bawang, the orders are ready for delivery. I ride with Wes as he goes to make the drop-offs.
3: What's your goal? My goal at Bawang? I mean, I'd love to be able to have a space where I could where I could entertain and really share that experience, you know, um, from dining in to having, you know, your friends and family together and just enjoying, enjoying a meal together.
0: Wes and I parked the car and dart across the street to make the last delivery of the night. Yes, guy, how are you?
3: I'm good, you ready? Here you go, man. Yeah, can't stop you. No, thank you, guys. Thank you. Stay warm. Oh, yeah, you too. Hope you guys enjoy it. Enjoy the rest of your Tag me in guys. any photos you take, yeah? Okay, okay. Well, I'll see ya. Take care, bye. That's it, bro. Let's go get some fucking red horse.
0: <laughs> yeah!
3: Last, last customer. That was the last customer, man. Was today a good day? Yeah, today was a good day.
0: Today was a good day busy but it's a good day overall in all the time that we've spent you know together getting in the car driving around right now giving people their food this is this is definitely the happiest and most chill i've seen you oh man yeah like i'm driving around the city
3: you know and just like i'm about to deliver a meal to someone that's looking forward to it and just as excited i feel like a drug dealer man (laughs) Everybody wants their lechon fix, and I'm, here I am, dropping it off.
0: What would you like to tell, if you were able to tell eight-year-old Wes, like, leaving the airport? You know, if you could talk to him right now, what would you, what would you say?
3: Man, there's so much.
0: <laughs> but I think one thing is, like, just to,
3: you know, be completely present and be completely yourself and just allow, allow your experiences to guide you through, you know, do something that you love, you know, and honestly, everything, everything will be okay. Like everything will always be okay. As long as you don't, don't lose your way.
0: All right. So I'm going to uh, turn off my recorder now. That means you could crank the tunes back up. Yes. <laughs> really really get your <laughs> your Friday night going.
3: Let's go, man.
2: <laughs> hey, yes. You and I the show. Chef Wesley Altoona, and eater Andrew Budziak. Fun fact, in case you didn't know, Red Horse is a super strong Filipino beer. That doc was produced and mixed by Andrew Budziak. It was edited by Julia Poggle. If you're in Toronto and you want to order your own adobo or something else off Chef Wes's menu, check him out on Instagram. Or if you don't live in Toronto and you just want to salivate from afar, check them out on Instagram anyway. He's at Bawang.to. That's B-A-W-A-N-G dot T-O. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Julia Poggle, Tanara McLean, Veronica Simmons, Sherry OKK, and me. Althea Manasin is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. And our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm Macy Rowe. Thanks for listening.